Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast, interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. Today, we'll be discussing the law as it relates to a uniquely American spirit, bourbon. And we'll learn how it played a surprising role in the development of a number of important legal doctrines, from intellectual property, to consumer protection, to false advertising. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by Brian Hera, attorney and author of the book Bourbon Justice. Brian, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. And you're joining us today from the epicenter of the bourbon world. Where are you today? I'll call it Louisville, Kentucky, because I'm a local, but Louisville is maybe more accepted. As two lawyers, we're talking about bourbon. Why don't we start with a legal definition? Is this actually a defined term? It's very much defined. It's something that has been defined since the 1800s, a little more loosely than but then in, by the 1960s, it made its way into the Code of Federal Regulations, and it's very heavily regulated. First, why don't we start with what has to go into it, and then we can move on to restrictions. Sure. All whiskey is a distillate made from grains, and bourbon is a type of whiskey. Different type of grains that can go into whiskey are barley, rye, corn, and several other grains. But the primary or the beginning definition for bourbon is that it has to be made from 51% corn. It's a majority corn whiskey. Second, it's got to be distilled to be no higher than 160 proof. And the reason there is if you start going higher than 160 proof, you're stripping away the grain flavor. And part of what makes bourbon so special is that you can taste some of the grains, the corn and the rye in your bourbon. When it's put into the barrel, it can be no higher than 125 proof. And that's for a similar reason, to have more interaction with the barrel at not so high of a proof. Now, I say the word barrel there. The CFR actually states uh, that the term that it uses is charred new oak containers. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a barrel. Everyone does use a barrel, but you could make a bucket out of new charred oak, put your distillate into it, and you could have bourbon. And then finally, when it's bottled, it has to be at least 80 proof. There's no upper limit, but it's got to be at least 80 proof in the bottle. Didn't you say the upper limit is 160 proof? Uh, it's, that's when you distill it, 160 proof when distilling. The proof in the barrel can go up or down depending on where it is in the warehouse. The higher you are in a, in a bourbon warehouse, your proof will actually increase. So you could start in the barrel at 120 proof and then seven years later have 137 proof. And it can go into the bottle at 137 proof and still be bourbon. It just can't go lower than 80 proof. And for the aficionados out there, you mentioned the container must be charred new oak. New oak meaning it's fresh. It hasn't been used for any barrels in the past? That's right. No previous use. Scotch uses bourbon barrels and sherry barrels. Tequila often uses bourbon barrels after they've been emptied. We basically get barrels ready for the rest of the whiskey world, but ours are first use. So that way they get more interaction with the char, which releases the sugars from the wood. 
and you get a sweeter whiskey than you find for scotch, for example. So that's what must go into bourbon. What about restrictions? What can't you include? Basically, you can't include anything else. The only thing you can put into bourbon, and it still be bourbon, is pure water. Other whiskeys like scotch, for example, you can add coloring and flavoring additives. That's prohibited in bourbon. The bourbon rule is you get your flavors from the yeast that you use in distillation, from the types of grain you use, and from the barrel. And that's it. So there's no honey bourbon that can go under the name bourbon. That's exactly right. Now, there is a lot of flavored whiskey that uses bourbon as its starting point. So there's honey flavored whiskey, and a lot of times that'll start with bourbon. There's, of course, cinnamon flavored whiskey, and there's bourbon that's put into other barrels after it's ready. And those that's called finishing. And you can add some different flavors there, but it's technically not bourbon anymore. Well, does that mean that bourbon is the most honest of whiskeys? I think bourbon is the most honest of whiskeys, but what's great about it is in the history of bourbon, there's a lot of dishonesty. And that's what I found real interesting. Well, we'll be discussing some of this whiskey bourbon chicanery in our conversation today. Why don't we start with one area that bourbons played an important role, and that's intellectual property. Maybe you'll set the stage for us. Sure. Bourbon, before it was bottled, was sent to taverns in the barrel. And federal regulations at the time required the distiller to burn onto the barrel head at the distillery number and the name and those sorts of things. So if you went to your local tavern, there would be several barrels behind the bar and people started asking for that bourbon based upon the name that had been branded onto the whiskey barrel head. And that quickly became known as brand name. So bourbon is responsible for the phrase that we hear day in and day out now, brand name. And that eventually developed into more of what we think of today as intellectual property in the sense of trademarks and trade dress and trade images. The Old Crow Distillery, for example, started using a picture of a crow. Even though the name Old Crow was named after a person, they started using that image on the barrel head as well. And that helped develop what we know today as trademark law. Branding started with an actual iron, I assume, brand sizzled onto the barrel of a, of a bourbon. Sizzled onto the oak of a barrel, leaving a, a burn mark with the brand name and sometimes an image. That's exactly right. You mentioned this, the case of Old Crow. For those who are not bourbon aficionados, that's a famous name in the bourbon space. Old Crow is an incredibly famous name. It used to be the most popular brand, hands down. Now, if any of the listeners have seen Old Crow, it's usually on the bottom shelf, maybe for about $11.99. But in the 1800s, it was hands down the best, the most famous bourbon brand. And the distiller of it was a Scottish chemist named James Crow. And he worked at first at the old Oscar Pepper distillery in Versailles, Kentucky. And that's where he brought to bourbon distilling more of a scientific approach. He could measure pH levels. He could keep the temperature of the fermenting mash at a constant level. He understood the chemistry and the science behind 
whiskey making. And that helped him make a more consistent brand of whiskey and became very famous. He became famous. Old Crow, as a bourbon, became famous. When did the law get involved? Well, the law got involved with Crow all along the ways. The Old Crow distillery was one of the first distilleries that had to sue copycat distillers who tried to use some version of the Crow name. Others tried to use the same sort of image as a Crow. Others tried to incorporate bird names. They tried to get close, but not too close. So like Old Raven or Old Blackbird? Right. There's a Raven. There was an Old Jay. And so it really put bourbon at the epicenter of how trademark law could develop. And when new brands got too close to an existing, well-established brand, and it's all whiskey cases from early times here. The other way that Crow got involved in litigation, I had mentioned the, the old Oscar Pepper distillery. He ended up getting plucked away from that distillery. And after he died, Colonel E.H. Taylor, who was a titan in the bourbon world, essentially saw the value in continuing his name. Because before then, once when a distiller died, the trade was passed on to his apprentice or to the next family member. Here, Colonel E.H. Taylor saw the significance in the Crow name, brought it to a new distillery, named the distillery the Old Crow Distillery, and this is after James Crow died, and that's when it became really famous. And was this in dispute? Was the, the prior Old Crow hoping to continue to use that name or disputing the ownership of the new Old Crow? The son of Oscar Pepper, who was James Pepper, once his father died, tried to continue to use the name Oscar Pepper and Old Crow. But the distillery had gone bankrupt and it was sold in bankruptcy to Colonel E.H. Taylor. And then along to a company called LeBro and Graham, which some listeners might recognize as current day Woodford Reserve. But LeBro and Graham owned the old Oscar Pepper distillery. They continued to call it the Oscar Pepper Distillery. And for a while, until they sold the Old Crow brand, they continued to make Old Crow bourbon at the Oscar Pepper Distillery. And James Pepper sued because he said, that's my name. I'm Oscar Pepper's son. I should be able to use this. James Crow worked here. I should be able to use that. And this is a late 1800s ruling, which set precedent that I use successfully in a 2018 bourbon lawsuit that basically said it's the geographic name of a location, of an actual distillery. I didn't quite understand the tie to geographic location. When the company that currently owns Woodford, when they bought out of bankruptcy the right to the Old Crow name, they also bought the distillery in its particular region? That's right. So the LeBron and Graham bought from Colonel E.H. Taylor, the old Oscar Pepper distillery. It's still there. It's where Woodford Reserve is today. It's a beautiful limestone distillery, again, built in the 1800s. You go through horse country to get there. It's scenic. It's beautiful. It's idyllic. And the court held that LeBron and Graham, when it bought the old Oscar Pepper distillery, it could continue to use that name because it was the accurate geographic location and name of that distillery. It could continue to call it the old Oscar Pepper distillery. 
And the impact of bourbon has continued in a number of other ways in intellectual property law. Maybe you can fire off a couple of examples from from olden times or or from more recent days. The fight that I saw time and time again, and it's a fight that continued through cases that I can find on our databases that we all search now from the 1950s and 60s, is the importance of names. And it happened with Maker's Mark, which is a, I'm sure, a bourbon that a lot of your listeners have heard about. It's happened uh, most recently with the name Dant. That was a famous name back in bourbon history. And these brands will fight with each other when someone from further down in the lineage tries to start their own brand. And for me, when I first read this, I thought, certainly if I wanted to start a brand, I can use my name because that's who I am. Why can't I use my name? And I think that's a natural inclination for people to have. But when it can cause confusion in the marketplace, which is a theme we see through the Lanham Act, these early bourbon lawsuits recognized that there could be consumer confusion. And so they prohibited the sons and the cousins and the great-grandsons from using the family name in their distillery. And those are the same rules that would prohibit me, you know, if my last name happened to be Gucci, from starting my own shoe store uh, based on my own name. That's exactly right. So the Maker's Mark story that they'll tell you on the tour is that Bill Sr. left the family company, burned the recipe, and all that may be true, and that he wanted to start a new kind of bourbon and that he wanted to use wheat along with the corn instead of rye along with the corn. It all makes for a great story. He and his wife worked on the iconic red wax that goes dripping down the closure and the neck of all makers mark bottles and it's a fantastic brand but what really happened is after he served in world war ii he came back and he wanted to start his own bourbon distillery but he wanted to call it the tw samuels distillery and that's his full name william is bill and he got sued by the existing tw samuels distillery which was his family's historic distillery that had been sold. It had been long ago been sold. He didn't have control of the name. It was New York Investment that now owned the company and they sued. So he had to come up with a new name. And that's when he and his wife came up with the Maker's Mark name. And it's a fantastic story. And the distillery wants to tell, I guess, what it thinks is a, is a better story. But I love the litigation aspect of it. And you mentioned the iconic red wax for Maker's Mark. There's been lawsuits involving that as well, I understand. That's right. Maker's Mark really hit the big stage in the 1980s. And about 10 years later, a Diageo-owned tequila brand started using dripping red wax. And Maker's sued Diageo. And fortunately for Maker's, it was in federal court in Louisville because I think we probably get a little bit of advantage here for bourbon brands. The court ended up ruling that the Diageo dripping red wax on its tequila infringed on the Maker's Mark trademark. Again, we get back to this concept of potential confusion of consumers. Nothing in drip, or at least not drip in red. At least not dripping red. The court actually, and I'm sure what everyone would consider to be dicta, 
indicated that it might go beyond red, but definitely in red. Don't do dripping red wax. Let's speak a bit about bourbon and consumer protection. I was surprised to learn that, of all things, bourbon was perhaps the, the genesis for the first, or one of the first, consumer protection laws in the country. That's right. And this was one of the m most exciting things that I found as, as I began to research, because like you, I, I never would have guessed that bourbon would be responsible for the nation's first consumer protection law. So it's not just early in consumer protection. Bourbon is literally the first consumer protection law. And we've all probably read at least excerpts of the jungle. We might know how bad adulterated milk was in the 1800s, adulterated candy, cocaine being used in teething drops for babies, let alone everything we read in the jungle about meatpacking and slaughterhouses. And amputated arms and, and rotten meat. That's exactly right. Parts is parts, as they say. But before the government protected us from any of those consumer goods, it protected us from bad bourbon. And it did that in something called the Bottled in Bond Act of 1897. Bourbon at the time was made exactly the way it is today. It's fermented mash, majority corn, aged in barrels, and given a good time to age. And one thing that I think has come through in a lot of areas of U.S. history is trying to find a quicker way to do something. And there were people called rectifiers at the time who were trying to find a quicker way to make bourbon. And what they would do is they would take distillate that was distilled to much higher than 160 proof, so it had stripped out a lot of the flavor, and then they would add things to it to try to make it taste like bourbon, to make it smell and look like bourbon. Some of those things were safe, some not so safe. So you're, if you're starting with a clear distillate, you have to add something to color it. There were reports of adding tobacco juice to give it its brown color. There were stories of crunching up bug shells that could be used as a dye to give the bourbon color. There were some reports of adding acid to not very high-proofed alcohol to give it the sort of the burn that is sometimes associated with bourbon. So all of these kinds of additives were used to give bourbon its, its smell and its taste. And some, again, were safe, some not so much. And in order to protect the citizenry from this bad bourbon, the federal government passed the Bottled and Bond Act, which required bourbon to be made by one distillery from one distiller, so one person at that one distillery, during one season, and bourbon distillers have two seasons. It's the, the fall and the spring. It's too cold in the winter and it's too hot in the summer. It had to be at least four years old and it had to be bottled at exactly 100 proof. And importantly, no additives. Finally, the law came out in 1897 saying no additives in bourbon. So that meant that a rectifier could not sell something called bottled and bond bourbon. So consumers could look for the phrase bottled and bond, and they could know that they were getting the solemn guarantee by the government that those strict rules were followed and there wouldn't be any additives or anything unsafe in the bourbon. The Bottled and Bond Act was really consumer protection for the high end of the market. Is that, is that fair? 
I think that's fair. And that's because it was a more expensive product. So if you could afford it, it protected you. That's right. And then in the Pure Food and Drug Act 1906, what was the change there? That put additional restrictions on what could be called bourbon, uh, what could be called imitation whiskey. And it was a much broader act that addressed all sorts of food and drugs. So we started in 1897 just dealing with bourbon. And by the time we got to 1906, we were finally dealing with meat and candy and milk and other sorts of things. And the Pure Food and Drug Act, unfortunately, didn't fix the fight between Colonel Taylor and rectifiers either. So President Taft a couple of years later, actually had to get involved essentially as an arbitrator. And he had to declare, and it's something called the Taft opinion. He declared what could be called what? Straight bourbon whiskey versus imitation whiskey. And he basically said, rectifiers, you can keep making this. That's fine. But you can't call it straight bourbon whiskey. You have to call it imitation whiskey. So the public needs to know from the label. And of course, no one wants to be imitation anything. So I'm. Imitation is a sort of a death knell for anything. Why don't we talk about truth in advertising? Truth in, in advertising has been a big part of bourbon because it seems that bourbon distillers often have tried to go a little overboard on their product. From early days too, the mash was originally heated in copper stills over open fires. And that was believed to be the way that you had to make bourbon if you're going to do it the right way. But that's a hard way to do it. And eventually the distilleries changed to a different type of still and they would use a closed furnace to heat it but they still wanted to pretend that they made it the old way. So they would put on their label that it was made in the old sour mash tradition over open fires. And courts finally would call them out on that. And so bourbon not only led the charge in trademark, not only led the charge in consumer protection, but also led the charge in false advertising and false labeling that carries through to today when you hear about, for example, Skechers getting into trouble for the Joe Namath commercials that he now, his back is now better because he wears Skechers or the Listerine commercial from 15 years ago that said, dentists say that it's better to use Listerine than floss. So all of these themes can be traced to bourbon law. And now a quick break for those listening for MC Lee Credit in California. The code for this interview is 118811. Again, that's 118811. And now back to the interview. We've spoken about food labeling laws in general. I, I was fascinated in another conversation to learn what uh, what means something and what doesn't. For example, organic versus natural. Why don't we talk a bit about that related to bourbon? Sure. I'm going to go through a list and, and ask if it means something or if it doesn't. Perfect. How about a small batch? Is that a legal term? It's not a legally defined term. It can have different meanings for different distilleries. 
it is a somewhat helpful term. And I only say somewhat because it can mean different things for different distilleries. Small batch essentially is the concept of using two or more barrels, mixing them together, and then, then bottling those two or more barrels together. If it's two to 12 barrels, to me, that's a small batch. That's a small batch of barrels that go into making one brand. There are other distilleries, though, that will use 500 barrels, put them together, and just use the phrase small batch. So in some cases, it can be pretty meaningless. I guess it's really defining the term small. Right. 500 barrels can be small to a distillery that maybe has 37,000 barrels in one warehouse, and that's just one warehouse. How about single barrel? Is single barrel whiskey, it seems pretty straightforward. It seems pretty straightforward. Um, it is one of the terms that I think has the least amount of dispute because just thinking of it logically, single means one, and that should mean that it is whiskey only from one barrel. The way that it has gotten a little bit in dispute is what if you add whiskey to that barrel? Can you still call it all from a single barrel? For example, if you top that off and age it for a little bit longer. Or what if you take the whiskey from several barrels and then put it into a new barrel for finishing purposes? For example, a, a sherry barrel. Can you call that single barrel? There's been no litigation about that, but there's definitely some interest in the industry in helping define even what a simple term like single barrel can mean. How about the term handmade? Handmade is one of my favorite terms, and Maker's Mark has been involved in litigation in Florida and California on its use of the word handmade on its labels. The plaintiffs in those two class actions claimed that they were duped. They thought they were buying something that was truly handmade, so they, they pictured someone stirring the mash by hand, and I don't know what else they could picture happening by hand because making bourbon is, it goes through stills. That's a, essentially a machine. You can't have your hand in there. It's hot. And then it sits around for a while without too much manual exactly. no, input. No human interaction. It just sits there and, and ages. But Maker's Mark uses the term handmade on its label. So it got sued. It won both of those lawsuits because... Uh, using handmade is puffery. And I wish puffery was a concept that had been created in bourbon law. I wish we could claim that, but it goes back to English common law. And it basically means that if something is so outrageous that you really ought not to believe it, then you can put it on the label. You should buy this horse. It's the finest horse in the land. That's exactly right. Now, once you start comparing that horse to other horses maybe you could get into trouble. But when you say something is handmade, consumers can't expect that it was literally handmade. How about the term craft? This is a, a craft bourbon or a craft whiskey. Craft is probably one of my least favorite bourbon terms, and it really means nothing. If, if any of the listeners see craft on a bottle, I might even steer you away from it. Uh, craft, I think, is supposed to mean from a small distillery, probably made in really small batches. Maybe they make an, enough distillate to put in two or so barrels per day. Um, only a couple people working there. Maybe they have their own farm. 
Um, they will use the word craft, but some of the factory distillers also use the word craft on some of their labels. So it's really just a, a meaningless term. It's a term that sells, that's for sure. But I think realistically, it's a meaningless term. It sounds nice. Maybe something like what makes an, an heirloom green bean an heirloom green bean. I'm not sure. I think that's a good comparison. Are there any other terms that you're seeing in bourbon advertising that are of interest from honesty or a perhaps misleading perspective? I mentioned the phrase finishing. So what is going on now, probably in the last five or so years, distillers and brand owners are taking bourbon that is otherwise ready to put into a bottle, and then they put it in a new cask. Sometimes those have been sherry casks. Some recently have used orange carousel casks, gin casks, rum casks, and all of these bring in the flavors from the spirit that had been there before. So the orange carousel will bring a really kind of chocolatey orange flavor to it. Some of the rums will bring a distinctively sweet flavor to it. A cognac barrel will bring some of that grapiness flavor to the bourbon. And for the longest time, the brands that would use finishing barrels would still just call their product bourbon. But again, remember our first rule, no additives. The only flavor that you can get uh, legitimately and still call yourself bourbon is from the, the grain that comes through in the distillate, the yeast that is used in that process as well. And then the rest is from the barrel and how long it's in the barrel, what kind of conditions it has under the barrel. Nothing else can be added. When you put it in a different kind of wood or a different barrel that at one time had a different type of spirit in it, you're giving it an additive. And so there's no regulation on this right now. There is something in the works. It's not been released yet, but it's popularly believed that the regulation will provide that you can call it bourbon so long as you say bourbon finished in sherry casks or cognac casks. Why don't we transition into, I suppose, a little bit more of the dark arts of false advertising. There's been a number of more egregious examples of bourbon advertising gone wrong. Maybe you can walk through a couple. Bourbon has generally consolidated in recent years, particularly since World War II. So whereas there at one time had been a lot of distilleries with their own product names. A lot of those are now owned by a single distilling company, and yet they still use all those different product names. So lawyers, I think, understand the concept of assumed names in the DBA. But if you go down the bourbon aisle at your local retailer, you will see, for example, the Pappy Van Winkle or the Old Rip Van Winkle Distillery. No such thing exists. And that's a very high-end whiskey. It's one of the highest-end whiskeys. It goes for incredible values on auctions. It's one of those that you can't find anywhere on a shelf ever. So maybe it's a bad example of walking into your retailer and seeing it. But there is no distillery by that name. It's an assumed name. It's a brand owner that contracts with a Kentucky distillery in Frankfurt to make the bourbon that is bottled under the Van Winkle brand names. But they tell a story that makes it sound like they've got their own distillery. 
So it's this idea that there is a distillery in the hills of Kentucky somewhere that makes a particular brand that is on the label when in fact it's made essentially at a factory. I think that's one area that's going to be ripe for consumer litigation. But more than that, that's assumed names. And I think, I generally think courts will allow assumed names to be used and say that's not really misleading a consumer. Where I think a distiller or a brand owner really gets into trouble is when they don't tell you where the bourbon is coming from or where they pretend that they're the ones making it. And Templeton Rye out of Iowa got into a lot of trouble because it had told a story about a prohibition recipe and making bourbon in Iowa and Al Capone coming to Iowa to get his rye when in fact it was buying bulk rye from a factory distillery in Indiana and trying to pass it off as its own rye. And Templeton was sued in a class action complaint for that sort of misrepresentation. They were trying to create this beautiful picture that maybe their story got a little ahead of them. That's exactly right. And the part that frustrates a lot of people about that is that it was good rye and, and is good rye. It's still a brand. Now they're clear on their label where it's made and all of that's fine and, and above board now. But it started out as a really good rye. Now, I called this a factory distillery in Indiana, and it is absolutely a factory. It's called MGP, and they make some fantastic rye whiskey. If you buy a rye that says on the label distilled in Indiana, it probably came from MGP. It's fantastic, but they make so much of it that I think some of the brands want to tell a little bit more of a story, and some get out ahead of their skis. Brian, uh, before we let you go, we've talked a bit about legal cases tracing back centuries. Uh, maybe you can leave us with something a little more recent, perhaps from your experience or something that you're monitoring. Absolutely. That's something that has really interested me about bourbon lawsuits is that we're not just dealing with the 1800s and leading the charge in so many different substantive areas of law but these are current day lawsuits as well. Recently in the Western District of Kentucky, we had an injunction granted against a new distillery that was using a historical name dating back to 1836 called Joseph Washington Dant. And there is currently a Dant brand owned by Heaven Hill, but the, a descendant of J.W. Dant had started a new distillery and he was using the year 1836, and they were talking about reviving the Dant legacy. Heaven Hill owns the Dant brand and sued the new distillery and obtained an, an injunction against using the year 1836 and against using what some people, I think, would consider actual history. So it's an ongoing dispute. Bourbon is still involved in trademark law. We can cite cases from the 1800s in current day cases, and it's all still relevant across the board. Brian Hara is an attorney practicing in Kentucky, the author of the book, Bourbon Justice, and writes on all things bourbon at his blog, Sip and Corn. Brian Hara, thanks for a lovely conversation. Joel, thank you very much for your time. It's been really fun for me. I enjoy talking about bourbon, and I'll 
look forward to getting together with you over a glass of bourbon. And thank you for watching Talks on Law. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.